Well, today we're in the midst of this uh, series, um, a grand invitation, and um, we're, we're dealing with evangelism, and we've been talking about this for several weeks, uh, three weeks to be exact, this is the third week, and uh, so today we're going to look at various scriptures throughout uh, the Bible. Usually we do a, uh, a expository message, we're going through a book, we're, we're kind of in between books right now, so we're going to take some time this morning and look at the mark of true conversion. Uh, last week uh, and the week before, we looked, first of all, what it means to be saved uh, last week, and we talked that about salvation being totally apart from human works, that our salvation is gifted to us by God. And also we looked at God's gift of salvation is received through faith alone. It's not received through church Membership, it's not received through baptism, it's not received through communion, it's received by, through faith alone. And then we looked at the idea that salvation results in a life full of good works. Well, if we're going to share the gospel effectively to those who have yet to believe in Christ, we need to make sure that we have the message right. And so today I want to talk a little bit about the mark of true conversion. How do we know when someone is converted? It's not like you can put them in front of an x-ray machine and say, oh yeah, I see Jesus in there, I see the Spirit in there. You can't do that. And so the Scripture gives us indication of how we can know whether someone is truly converted or not. And the reason that's important to understand is because there are occasions, a lot of occasions actually, when people are falsely converted. And what do I mean by that? It's not uncommon at all to hear about people who make a profession of being born again. They say, yeah, I, I'm saved. But there's no change. There's no change in their behavior. There's no change in their desires. There's really no different in their life from anyone else out there in the world. They've never turned from their sin that characterized that life before their profession of being born again. And so you see it played out in their morals. You see it played out in their marriages. You see it played out in the way they raise their children, in their own materialistic lifestyles. All these things are played out, but they're professing that they know Jesus. They're saying, yeah, I made that committee commitment. I walked that aisle. I raised that hand. Um, and yet their lives are no different than the rest of our pagan culture. And you can see where that would be a sense of frustration for anyone, to be coming to church every week and yet to know that somehow your life is no different than it was before you made this walk down the aisle or this profession of faith. You have no other desires. Um, you don't desire to be with God's people. You don't desire to read the Bible. You don't desire to pray. None of those things are new in your life, but you made that commitment because maybe some preacher got you to an emotional state maybe scared you a little bit, and somehow you raised your hand in the meeting or you walked down the aisle and prayed with somebody what they call the sinner's prayer. Uh, are people who have prayed to receive Christ or who claim to be born again but whose lives are no different than they were before, are they converted? Are they truly saved? And there's a lot of different schools of thought on this, but this morning I would encourage you to look in the Bible for answers, which we will do, and the Bible answers that question very loudly. It says no, they're not. As a matter of fact, it gives examples of people. Because those who are truly converted to faith in Christ are marked by what the Bible calls the mark of true, repent, or of true conversion, and that being repentance. Repentance. You've probably heard that word, right? Repentance. Um, that doesn't mean that when you come to Christ that you become sinless. You're not perfect. You're still a sinner. But you're saved by God's grace. And He loves you and He treats you as a saint. He treats you as His child. It doesn't mean that you are sinless, but it does mean simply that you sin less. Okay. If you don't see that change in your life and you're claiming to know Christ and your life is the same as it was before and yet now you've just kind of woven into the fabric of your life church or Bible study or 
praying before a meal, and somehow you think that that earns you credit before a holy God, you're sorely mistaken. Those who have been truly born again should see evidence of that faith, that transformation, that salvation in their lives. They should, not going to be perfect, but they should see a a, a, a kind of a, a downward cycle of sin in their life. It shouldn't definitely increase. A lot of times those who are saved will mourn over their sin. When you sin as a Christian, you feel bad that you've sinned. You feel bad that somehow that you've crossed, that you violated God's moral law. And so the Spirit convicts you of that. And when he convicts you of that, you mourn over your sin. You, you fight against your sin. That's what Paul says in Romans as we've gone through that book. He, he said he was constant battle dealing with sin. Remember the things that I want to do, I, do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's how Paul felt. The apostle Paul felt that way. So when we sin as believers... We should turn from that sin and turn back to following Christ as Lord. That should be the conviction. And so a biblical study of the word repentance, which basically means a life turning from God, learning, turning to God from sin, that's the mark of true conversion. Repentance is the mark of true conversion. So I want to spend a little time this morning talking about repentance, what it is. Because it relates to the message of evangelism. It it relates to the idea that we're going to go out of this building and share our faith with those who have yet to believe. And if we don't make it clear that people who are lost need repentance, it's necessary for salvation. You're not going to be saved without it. What happens is you end up giving people false hope. You end up producing false converts. You end up producing people that are willing to come to church and hear the message, but then they go out Monday through Saturday and live like the world. And they don't have any conscience about it because they think somehow by coming to church every week, they're earning credits with God. Somehow the good will outweigh the bad in the end. The truth is those who live their lives that way before God are on a broad path, the Bible says, on a broad path to hell on a place of eternal torment, a place of separation from God except for his wrath. A lot of people say, well, isn't hell a place where the the presence of God is not found? No. The presence of God is found in hell because God is everywhere. But the presence that you will feel in hell for all eternity from God is not his love, not his grace, not his mercy. You will feel his wrath. That's the presence of God that is, is in hell for all eternity. And see, so it's crucial to understand today because there's so many in the evangelical society today that embrace this false kind of gospel message. They'll say things like, well, all you have to do is just, just believe in Jesus. All you have to do is just say that he's Lord. All you have to do is just pray this little prayer. All you have to do is just come to church. Just try to be a better person. That is not the gospel that Jesus taught. That's not the gospel that we find in the New Testament at all. There's a whole society, beloved, called the Grace Evangelical Society. Mostly it's made up of graduates from what used to be a wonderful seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, that has really turned sour over the years. It really has. Because they promote the view that repentance has no part in evangelism, has no part in salvation. They're the people that would say, well, you can come to Jesus as Savior, and you don't have to worry about the Lordship stuff. Don't worry about that. Down the road, when you, when you get to know Jesus a little more as your Savior, then you can make him Lord of your life. That's a false message. Because the Bible says that Jesus, what? Is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. And so they argue, their argument is that when people bring up repentance, when you present the gospel, it really undermines what they say is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
They say, well, you can't say you're saved by faith alone through grace and then add repentance on top of that because they view falsely that repentance is a work. And so they have to define this word very narrowly. And the way they define repentance, and maybe you've defined it this way. I know I have in the past, and I've since corrected my thinking. But sometimes when people say, well, what does repentance mean? I used to answer it this way. Well, it means to change your mind. That's not a biblical definition of repentance by any means, by any stretch. It's far from it. But it sounds nice. You know, you, you just, you know, if you're sharing with somebody who's lost and, you know, re, you need to repent. Well, what's that mean? What this means, you know, you need to change your mind about Jesus. Just change your mind about who he is. That doesn't save you. That will not save you. Um, and they say that you just have to acknowledge that he is the Savior. Just acknowledge that Jesus is God. They argue it does not mean, they say repentance does not mean this, it cannot mean this, turning from sin or changing one's conduct. That's not allowed. So you see the, the problem with that message? You're, you're telling people, yeah, just believe in Jesus, and well, what about if I'm living with somebody who's not my, my wife in sexual immorality? Well, don't worry about that. It's okay. You're saved by grace. God forgives you of all your sins. And what's it do? It opens up the door for people to claim they have been saved and continue to live in a sinful lifestyle. And there are churches all over our nation that that not only embrace this kind of doctrine, but you see it fleshed out in the way that they make up their membership, their congregation. I was asked recently, well, would you welcome someone who is of a homosexual persuasion into your church? I said, sure we would. They want to come and sit and hear the message? They're, They're welcome just like anybody else. Well, okay, I I guess I hear what you're saying. But would you affirm them? (laughs) So what do you mean by that? Well, would you acknowledge that their homosexuality is okay? I said, absolutely not. I couldn't do that. That would be a direct violation of what Scripture says. Oh, so then you really wouldn't welcome them. I said, no, they'd be welcome. But they're going to hear the message everybody else hears. That they need to turn from their sin and embrace a Savior who is willing to forgive. Now, that is a message that churches are bending because they want a full church. And so I know of evangelical churches that affirm people of that persuasion. They welcome them wholeheartedly. And you won't hear them preach against it because they don't want to turn them away. And they think that somehow by doing that, they're, they're going to win them to Christ, but they're, they're not winning them with the proper message. See, it doesn't matter whether it's homosexuality or adultery or lust or stealing or lying. Sin is sin. And the Bible says if you're going to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness, you need to acknowledge that sin. You need to come before a holy God being willing to say, yeah, I am a sinner. And there's things in my life that should not be there. They argue that submitting to Christ as Lord is desirable for the Christian, but it's not necessary for salvation. So people of this persuasion would say, well, you know, uh, you can come to Jesus as your Savior. He can forgive all your sins, but you don't have to acknowledge him as Lord. He doesn't have to be in control of your life. You don't have to yield in submission to him. That's the next step in your salvation. But that is nowhere taught in Scripture. Nowhere. When you look at a study of repentance, this word, in the Bible, it shows, first of all, that it is a turning from sin to the Savior. It's not just a change of mind. If it was to just acknowledge Jesus as God or acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior, I can think of a group of beings that do that 
but they'll never be saved. Satan believes that. All the demons know that. They don't just believe it. They know it to be true as fact that Jesus is God, that he is a savior, that he can forgive sin. They know all those facts, but they're not saved. Why? See, that, that's the, the key. And so first of all, repentance is to turn to God from sin, to turn to God from sin. In the Old Testament, this word repent, it basically means to turn or to return. You can see it. It's used a little over a thousand times, a thousand fifty times, I think. And sometimes it's used just as someone's walking down a path and they wanted to return to the city, so they turned around and went back. But many times, as you look throughout the Old Testament, that word repent is talked about turning to the Lord. It's not just turning away from something. You have to have something to turn to. One scholar, Victor Hamilton, put it this way. He said, it combines itself, it combines in itself the two requisites of repentance, to turn from evil and to turn to good. See, it's not good enough just to say, well, I changed my mind about Jesus, and yet nothing's happened in your life. He goes on, he says this, this conscious, conscious decision of turning to God includes repudiation of all sin and affirmation of God's total will for one's life. What's he saying? So when you come to Christ, you come to him as Savior and Lord. You don't just come to him as your Savior and then make him Lord later. In the New Testament, the words for repentance occur several times. Sometimes they occur in the form of a noun. Sometimes they occur in the form of a verb. Over 60 times it occurs throughout the New Testament. Beginning with a summary of both John the Baptist and Jesus' preaching when they would say, repent, what? For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They would, that's what their message was. Well, what is repentance? John MacArthur defines it this way. Godly sorrow for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it. Godly sorrow for, for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it. R.C. Trench, who wrote a, a little book called the, the Synonyms of the New Testament by Erdman's great little work, he wrote this. He says, describes repentance as that mighty change in mind, heart, and life wrought by the Spirit of God. So there's a change. And while the main Greek word of repentance in the Greek is a compound, it's made up of two words, actually, which means to change one's mind. That's where they get that definition. According to another scholar, someone says this, this plays very little part in the New Testament. Rather, the decision by the whole man to turn around is stressed. It's not just changing your mind. If I said, you know what, I think I'm going to drive to Fresno. And I started driving to Fresno. And the closer I get to Fresno, guess what? It gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And I'm sitting in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what, I don't want to go to Fresno. This is not a good, good decision to go to Fresno right now. It's probably 110 over there or whatever. And, but I just don't want to go to Fresno, but I just keep on driving. Just because I changed my mind, what do I have to do? I have to get off the off-ramp, right? Go over, get back on the freeway, and head the opposite direction back to the nice, cool weather of the Bay Area. See, just changing my mind about going there wouldn't do it. It has to be put into action, and that's what he talks about here. He says, it is clear that we are concerned neither with a purely outward turning nor with a merely intellectual change of ideas. Wayne Grudem describes repentance this way. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just a change of your mind that has, is detached from your actions. Repentance is connected to your actions. Repentance is a gift that God grants us by his sovereign grace, which results in a change of thinking, feeling, and behaving. So it changes our thinking, it changes our feeling, and it changes our behaving. But remember, this is something that God grants us. This is not something you do on your own. 
See, we tell people all the time when we share the gospel with them, what do we say? Well, you know, you need to repent. Do you know that's something they can't do? They can't do. They, they don't have the ability to repent. Well, how could you say that? Because the Bible describes them as what? Dead. They're walking corpse. Spiritually, they're dead. They're dead in their sins and their trespasses. The last time I checked, you can order a, a dead person to do whatever you want. They're not going to do it. There's no life there. They can't do it. And see, that's the spiritual nature of someone who doesn't know Christ. The Bible says they are dead in their sins. As a matter of fact, it even goes on further. and It says they can't even understand without God's assistance the words of Scripture. They can't even comprehend it. Because it's not a natural book. It's a spiritual book. And Paul says in Corinthians, how can an unspiritual man understand something that is spiritual? It's impossible unless God gives him assistance. And so repentance is a gift that God grants us. And if you question what I'm saying, turn over in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. We'll turn to a couple places today, but one of them is 2 Timothy chapter 2. And eventually we'll turn over to Jonah too. So if you want to find Obadiah Jonah in the Old Testament now, put a little mark there. You can go there, Jonah chapter 3. But right now, 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at what it says in verse 24. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then look at what it says. God may perhaps, what? Grant them repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, that's who an unbeliever is. It's someone who's been captured by the devil to do his will. And when God grants us repentance, a change of mind, a change of direction, a change of action that affects our mind, our feelings, our actions, the way we behave, then he transforms us. And once that's why when people come to Christ, when you go out and you have the opportunity to, to pray with someone and they're sincere and God truly saves them, you, you can see it. You don't have to walk away going, oh, I wonder if that real was real. You see it. You see it in the way the burden of sin was lifted off their lives. You see it in the way that they embrace Christ. They embrace his word. First thing they probably ask is, well, what should I do now? Should I go to church? What church should I go to? I want to know more. Do you have a Bible? No, but, you know, I want to go get one. Well, here, you know, we'll give you one. Oh, Great. How do I read this thing? What do I do? Why? They have a desire that God has placed within them. That's the mark of someone who is truly saved. Like saving faith, repentance is a gift that God grants us by his sovereign grace. It's not something that sinful man can produce. Now the catch is, we're still responsible to repent. Just like we're still responsible to believe. But when a sinner repents, it is because God graciously has granted that repentance, that change in heart, mind, feelings to them. Now, sorrow for sin is obviously part of that repentance. It's important to understand that it is, it is possible, it's totally possible to feel sorry for your sins, and yet not have repentance unto salvation. If you think in the Bible, one person in the New Testament, we could all probably agree, had this kind of sorrow, was the one who betrayed our Lord. The Bible says that he felt sorrow. Judas Iscariot felt remorse. Why? Because he betrayed Jesus. Do you remember the story? He got the silver, and then he realized, ah, I can't do this, and he goes back, and he throws the silver, and the, he felt remorse. Yet he was not converted, because it was not a remorse, a repentance that was granted to him by God. He just felt sorry he got caught. <laughs> he felt sorry it didn't work out the way he thought it was going to work out. Sometimes, like with our kids, you know, our kids get... In trouble sometimes. They get caught doing something they shouldn't do. 
And as soon as they realize they're caught, what do they do? I'm sorry. Right? They fess up. When they realize lying's not going to get them anywhere, when they realize, man, they're caught red-handed, they can't get out of this. They fess up. But a lot of times, if you would never know about their, their sinful behavior, they probably wouldn't come to you and say, Daddy, let me tell you what I did today that was wrong. <laughs> Very seldom would children do that. Esau, in Hebrews twelve seventeen, it tells us, found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Isn't that interesting? He sought for it with tears, and yet he didn't find it. Paul told the Corinthians that sorrow, according to the will of God, can lead to repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he said there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. But sorrow for sin, what the Bible teaches, that's not enough to get saved. That's not enough to grant you repentance. Biblical repentance is a turning of the whole person from sin to God. That's what biblical repentance is. The repentant person, the person who truly is repentant, first of all, they accept responsibility for their sins. And they realize, wow, they're in a real, uh, uh, they have a problem here because they're a sinful being standing before a holy God. What do I do? And so they need to accept responsibility for their sin. And after they accept responsibility for their sin and they acknowledge that they're a sinner, then they can call out in faith to God for salvation. And he proves his repentance and his faith, what? By his good works. After someone is saved, after someone has repented, after someone, God has saved them, what happens? Their life is changed. Pretty soon they're interested in doing works that God has prepared for them beforehand to do. Good works. Turn over to Jonah. This is a good example. In the Old Testament, toward the end of the Old Testament, minor prophets there, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. We all probably are familiar with the story of Jonah. He's a prophet. God told him to go to Nineveh, this, this abhorrent city, and proclaim God's message. That's what God told him to do. Well, he didn't want to go. <laughs> do you remember the story? What? God said, go this way. And Jonah said, ah, I think I'll go this way. <laughs> and he ended up in the belly of a fish, great fish, whale, whatever. And uh, after a while, he was thrown up on the, on the beach. He learned his lesson. And he said, all right, I'll go. I'll go back to Nineveh. And I'll proclaim God's message of salvation to them to these people that I just really detest. And in 40 days, the city would be overthrown for its sin. I mean, he's thinking, hey, this is not going to be good. They're not going to repent. But you know what happens? Jonah preached the message that God told him to preach. And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh, wow, they believe God. In other words, they believe Jonah's message. See, and that's, that's key for us as far as evangelism goes. Because when we go out of these four walls into a lost and dying world and we share the message of the gospel, whose message are we sharing? We're not sharing the message of Grace Bible Church. You're not sharing your message. You're sharing God's message. So, you know, you don't come back from going out and Little maybe had did some evangelism. You go out and you come back and you say, "Yeah, I can't believe how many people believe my message today." You would never say that as a Christian. You would say, "No, they believe God's message of salvation." So therefore, if they're believing God's message for salvation, even though God is using you to give it to them, guess what? When they don't believe it, guess who they're not believing? They're not not believing you. They're not believing God. So it kind of takes that off of you. You don't have to feel, you know, like somehow you have to go out there like a used car salesman and sell Jesus to everybody. 
and keep on lowering the price. Come on, don't you want Jesus to help your marriage, don't you? And just keep on lowering the price till finally you get them to sign on the dotted line and you can walk away and go, well, praise God, they prayed the prayer. That is not salvation. That is not even evangelism. And so what happens to Jonah's displeasure, it says that they believe God. And then down in verses 5 to 8, you see the evidence of their faith. Now, this is a pagan city. These are people that are clearly unbelievers in every way. And yet when Jonah went and he preached God's message, it says they believed. And then look at what happens. Verse 5, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. What's that? It's a sign of mourning. They were mourning for their sin. From the greatest of them to the least of them. What a wonderful thing God did in this city. Everybody here came and believed the message of God. And then in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. He removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth. Even the king was touched by this message and sat in ashes. Another sign of, of mourning. In verse 7 it says, And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. Here's what the, the, the publication said. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. He proclaimed a fast. Verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And here is what repentance is. Look at what it says. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he laid, that he had uh, said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, unfortunately, God's servant was very displeased. <laughs> most, most pastors would be, wow, praise God, everybody got saved. But Jonah was kind of not most pastor. He was like, oh, man, these people actually turned. They got saved. He was sad. See, what's the evidence of their faith? Their repentance, that they turned from their wicked way. They turned to God from sin. We see the same thing in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul's ministering to this church here in, in Thessalonia. And he, he writes in verse 8, he says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forward so that we may not need to say anything. What, what happened to these? See, the Thessalonians had believed in the gospel that God had preached to them. But clearly their faith was inseparable from their repentance. In verse 9 it says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned, look, to God from idols to serve a living and true God. See, Paul did not go to Thessalonica and say, You know what? Just believe in Jesus and everything's going to be okay. You can turn from all these idols later. Don't worry about it. You just continue to do that. But if you just name Jesus' name, just pray this little prayer. That's not what Paul said. Rather, he included repentance in the gospel. He said, you know what? If you want to come to Christ, you have to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. You have to feel sorrow for your sin. And their whole way of life there in in Thessalonica changed from idolatry to serving the living and true God. I mean, think about that. What an impact it made. And the other example we see here is when Paul was before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 18. He's dealing with Gentiles once again. And he summarized his message to King Agrippa by saying that the Lord had sent him to the Gentiles. Why? Why did, why did Paul go to the Gentiles? He tells us right there in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may, what, turn there's that word, repentance, from darkness to light and from the domination, dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inherit 
and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Guess where Paul heard those words? Paul heard those words directly from Jesus himself. He was to proclaim this message to all the lost Gentiles. It was a message about repentance, turning from sin, turning from darkness, turning from Satan's dominion to God's. You know, the the message is bound up with, but not distinct from, forgiveness of sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very important to understand. It's not one or the other. Repentance and faith go together. Paul goes on to say that in obedience to Christ, he preached in in Acts, uh, verse 20 there of Acts 26, even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. See, if someone repents, it's because God has granted them repentance. And because God has granted them repentance, he's going to provide the works for them to do as a result of their salvation. See, we, we have it kind of backwards. We will lead someone in a prayer of salvation, the sinner's prayer, people call it, and you lead them in this prayer, and then at the end of the prayer, you say, now you have to go to church. I don't tell people that. I figure, you know what? If the Holy Spirit that resides within them can't convict them and give them the common sense that they need to now be in a Bible-believing church, they're probably not saved. (laughs) Because God can clearly do that. God cares for all of us. You know, and I think part of it, and I'm all for discipleship, I'm all for taking young believers and, and training them and teaching them, but I think sometimes we do that too quickly. I've experienced that in my own ministry. You, you take guys and, oh, yeah, we want to we wanna grow in the Lord. Well, you take them and you start discipling them and you teach them all this stuff, and what happens? Maybe you do this for a couple years. And then all of a sudden they say, yeah, see you later. It's like, wait, what? What happened? What happened to the, I don't know, I'm not feeling it anymore. I'm going to move on to something else. Well, what happened? They were never a believer. And yet I was giving them all this information, assuming they were. You know, and if they didn't come to the meeting, I'd call them, hey, where were you? You know, we missed you. You know, kind of maybe give them a little guilt so they'd show up next time. Don't you think the Holy Spirit can do that? You know, uh, I've been in ministry long enough. I've dealt with people that, you know, well, gee, you know, I, I haven't been to church in two weeks and you never even called. Okay, well, why weren't you in church? Is this a test or something? I mean, what, you know, I mean, if you have a need or whatever, you're sick, call and let us know. But I'm not the doorkeeper here at the church. We don't have somebody back there, oh, Joe's not here today. We better get on him, you know, make him feel guilty. So he's here next week. We don't do that here. We think God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is perfectly capable to convict those who have trusted him for salvation. Now, I have nothing about visiting people or calling people. I do that. I do it a lot. But I'm just saying that there's no motivation there. And we have to begin to understand Paul's gospel, which he got straight from Jesus, including turn, included turning from God, turning to God from sin. Lost people have to turn from their sin to be saved. Second thing here. Our presentation of the gospel is incomplete if you don't talk about repentance, if you don't talk about turning to God from sin. It's incomplete. Uh, We see John the Baptist who preached repentance to lost people. He made it clear. He wasn't talking about just a change of mind. He wasn't talking about just, you know, oh, just love Jesus. No, he was talking about a change of behavior. In Luke chapter 3, verse 3, he said this, he summarized his message as this, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, he told his hearers that they needed to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Verses 11, or verse 8 there. And then he gave them specific behavioral changes they needed to make in verses 11 through 14 of Luke 3. And so John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. Jesus also preached a message of repentance to lost people. He told the Jews in Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and 5, unless you repent, you will likewise all perish. That's a pretty strong message. And he wasn't just, you know, saying, well, unless you like me, then you'll, you, 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 you." he wasn't saying that. He's like, no, you need to devote your life to me. 
That's what repentance is. And Jesus also sent out his disciples, of which we are, to preach the message in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, that men should repent. They didn't make it up. This isn't a message. They, just, they got it straight from the Lord. They got it straight from Jesus himself. Paul got the same message. John MacArthur sums up a chapter in according, a gospel according to Jesus in his book on repentance. He says, repentance has always been the foundation of the biblical call to salvation. Repentance has always been the foundation, the, the, the bedrock of the biblical call to salvation. No evangelism that omits the message of repentance can properly be called the gospel. For sinners cannot come to Jesus Christ apart from a radical change of heart, mind, and will. That demands a spiritual crisis leading to a complete turnaround and ultimately a wholesale transformation. That is true salvation. That is true conversion. And that is the only kind of conversion that the Scriptures recognize. Well, what's the relationship then between repentance and saving faith? What is, what is the, the, the relationship they have? They're, they're bound together, like two sides of the same coin. You can take a coin and say, well, I'm looking at the, the heads and you're looking at the tails, but it's the same coin. But the two words have different nuances or emphasis. True saving faith, which is trusting in Christ alone and his shed blood to deliver us from God's wrath, includes repentance. You can't truly lay hold of Jesus for salvation on one hand while at the same time knowing that you're holding on to your sin with the other hand. It doesn't work. That's not true salvation. To genuinely trust Christ, you must turn from your sin sin. And only God can grant you the ability and the wherewithal to do that. Now, we all have run into people who verbally profess Jesus. They say they believe in Jesus. And then you look at their life and they're holding on tightly to their sin. Years ago, I talked to an individual here in our church had a substance abuse problem. Wouldn't give it up. Yet he was here praising the Lord with all of us every Sunday. Finally, I just talked to him, and I said, what is going on with you? Why, what is this behavior? I mean, this is not honoring to, to God. Why are you doing this? And he was kind of sorry for it. And I said, well, I don't understand. I mean, you know, I can see. I mean, get some help or do something. Oh, I've been through that. I've been, I just, you know, I just, I want to do this. I want to do these drugs. It's like, I know, but you're saying you're a Christian. You're saying that God has changed you. He has the power to save you, but he doesn't have the power to deal with this issue in your life. Is that what you're telling me? I kept on badgering him. Why, why, why? And finally, he looked at me right in the fellowship hall sitting across the table. He says, you know what? I love the world. I just love the world. I love this. And I'm not going to give it up. (laughs) I mean, talk about a sobering moment. This is a guy that's raising his hands, praising the Lord on Sundays. And I'm thinking, well, this guy's not a believer. And I told him so. And see, we, we have to be bold about these. You can't give the message of the gospel without saying, you know what? When this happens to you, you will know it. I don't have to tell you what to say to God. This is another practical step when you're, when you're sharing the gospel with someone and it comes to the point in the conversation where maybe you ask them, would you like to trust Christ as your Savior? And they say, yes. Please, please don't say, well, you know what? Let me, let me get this little prayer out of my Bible here. Let's just, I'll pray this and then I'll say the words and you just, just mouth the words after me. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. And you go, you know, you, you know the sinner's prayer. And you go through it like them. And then at the end of the prayer, welcome to the family. Now you're born again. How do you know that? How do you know that person's just going, man, this guy's driving me nuts. Okay, whatever, I'll pray the prayer. Just get out of my hair. See, when it comes to that point in evangelism and someone 
you, you sense that, boy, God is really convicting them, and that you see maybe a sorrow in their eyes over their sin, and they're, they're broken over their sin, and you get them to the point where you say, would you, would you like to trust Christ as Savior? And they say yes. They say, well, let's, how do I do that? You know what, let's just tell, tell God what you're feeling right now. Go to God. Confess your sin. Acknowledge who Christ is. Well, how do you do that? Well, you, you do it through prayer. I don't lead them in a prayer. I just refuse to do it. I'm thinking God can lead them in the prayer. <laughs> and sometimes their prayers are a little off and they're a little awkward. But you know what? They prayed them. And it came from their heart. And sometimes those prayers are the most profound prayers I've ever heard when someone has come to Christ. It's not something off a little three-by-five card I shoved in the back of my Bible. And then you see God really begin to work. See, an empty profession without repentance is not true saving faith. True repentance means that you don't just think or talk about it. You actually turn around. You actually see an action in your life. Your behavior begins to reflect your beliefs. If you truly believe in Christ as your Savior, you'll turn from your sin. That's repentance. J. Edwin Orr wrote this, The difference between true faith and what the Scripture calls false faith is simple. It is the lack of repentance. If you want to know the difference between true faith and false faith, it's basically the lack of repentance. Look over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And this is a story of Simon the sorcerer. We probably are familiar with this. Acts chapter 8. Look here in verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. So it kind of shows his motivation, right? Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And look at what it says in verse 13. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here you have this person who was put in the place of God among the people. They considered him great because he amazed the people with his magic that was obviously demonic or deceptive at least. But after he believed, it says that he saw the the signs and wonders that Philip was performing by the power of God as one of God's messengers, and it says that the amazer was amazed. <laughs> the one who used to go out and amaze crowds, he was amazed. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Simon's watching all this. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. (laughs) See, his true motivation came out. Saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Look at what Peter says to him in verse 20. This is probably what Peter would say to most televangelists on TV today after your money. But Peter said to them in verse 20, May your silver perish with you. 
because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And what's the message he tells them? This is someone who said they believed, was baptized. Verse 22, repent therefore of the wickedness of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. See, just because someone says they believe the message of the gospel, if their true motivation comes out, they may not. They may show you that they, they didn't really mean, mean anything when they prayed that prayer. You know, when we come to Christ, it changes our lives forever. Those of us who have done it know it. That we could go around the room here this morning if we had time and say, tell me your story. What was your story like before Christ? This is what a testimony is. How did you come to Christ? And what's gone on since you've come to Christ? That's called a testimony. That's, that's sharing what God has done in your life. And you know, it's probably the most effective way to evangelize other people. Maybe you have a neighbor. Maybe you have somebody, that, a relative that comes up and says, yeah, man, I'm just having an issue. I've got this problem at work, a problem with my kids, a problem with my marriage, whatever problem it may be. And you can use that as an open door to say, you know what? I remember when I used to struggle with that. And I, it was a burden that I was carrying. But you know what? Here's what happened. And you start to unload your testimony, your story to them. And you can include some verses and you can tell them how God has affected change in your life. That's the most effective way of sharing Christ with others. How can anyone dodge the fact that repentance is at the heart of the gospel? But repentance isn't just something a person does at the moment of salvation and then says, well, I got that over with. Let's, let's move on to something else. And this is the second part here. Point two, those who are saved will be marked by repentance as an ongoing way of life. See, repentance isn't just a one-time deal. Repentance is a continuous mode of operation in our life. We're in the, the mode of repenting continuously. Why? Because true Christians grow increasingly sensitive to sin. There are sins probably before you were a Christian that you would commit you wouldn't even think twice about. And then when you become a Christian, all of a sudden, the Spirit begins to convict you. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be calling people those names. You shouldn't be doing this. Or you shouldn't be taking these things from work or whatever it might be. And the, the Spirit begins to convict you. And so you realize, wow, okay, I'm going to stop this. And, and God, the more you become like Christ through the process of sanctification, you know what? The more you become aware of your sin. This is what happens. And so this repenting goes on. To grow in Christ means to walk more closely with him in the light of his word. The word that exposes things in our lives that are not pleasing to him. That's why it's so important when someone comes to Christ that to know for sure that they're a true conversion and that truly saved, you can see a healthy appetite for the word of God. And when they begin to devour the Word of God, they begin to study the Word of God, they begin to attend Bible study in church. Why? Because they want to hear the Word of God. They change the channel on their car to a Christian station. Why? Because when they're driving in the car, they don't want to just waste time listening to music. They want to learn more about Christ. They want to learn more about God. And as they do that, what does God do? He begins to peel back the, the layers of the onion, and he begins to show them just how sinful they really are. <laughs> and what does that cause? That, that causes humility before God. And it causes us to, our hearts to well up in thank, thankfulness for his forgiveness. That he would forgive someone like me? So it's an ongoing way of life. Like I said, we don't become sinless. But we do sin less as we grow in our relationship with God. And then thirdly here today, when sinners repent, God welcomes them with great joy. And there's several portions of scripture here, but for time's sake, we're not going to go into all of them. But the fact that God grants us 
repentance gives us great hope. That the idea that God would even give us salvation should give us incredible joy. It means that we turn to God from our sin and that he will be gracious to us, not because of who we are, but because of who his son was and what he accomplished on our behalf. Both the Old and the New Testament picture God entreating sinners to turn back to him. Even back in Isaiah chapter 55, he tells tells us in verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I love that verse because it tells me that God doesn't just pardon us. It's abundantly pardoned. I mean, that that means that pardoning goes on and on and on. When Jesus told the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 15, in the third story, he illustrates repentance on part of the prodigal son who said, I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. You know the story. And in your sight, I am no worthy longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. But he didn't just think that way. He actually went and did it. He went back to his father's house. And did the father say, you know what? You're a sad excuse for the son. Yeah, you go out there with the pigs on my property. That's where you're going to live now. No, he didn't do that. The father saw him, the Bible says, a way off. In other words, he was... He was anticipating his son coming back. And he was so excited. He ran to him. Threw his arms around him, kissed him, welcomed him, as the Bible says in Luke 15, with great joy. See, that's the kind of response that God has when any sinner repents, turns from his sin, and turns to him. If you'll turn to God from your sin and you'll trust Christ, he will welcome you with great joy. I talk to people all the time who say, no, you don't understand what I've done. You don't, you know, God couldn't accept me. You don't know how bad my sin is. I don't need to. I already know God already knows all about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every sin that you've ever committed. And you know what he says? I'm here. I'm willing to forgive it. Just come and acknowledge it before me. You leave this morning, ask yourself these questions. Did your profession of faith in Christ include repentance? Did it include repentance? You could be here well-meaning and, and, you know, coming to church or whatever. But when you came to Christ, if, if, if it did not include repentance... If there wasn't a change, I just want to leave you with this verse. This verse haunts me as a pastor. It just haunts me out of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, listen to some of these things, prophesy in your name? Did we not in your name cast out demons? Did we not in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Don't be deceived. The mark of true conversion is a life It is turning to God from sin. Anything else is counterfeit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, as we go out and we share the message of the gospel with those who have yet to believe as we study this, the Grand Invitation series on evangelism, that we would be faithful to the message that you provided to us, that we wouldn't go out there and just try to get people to sign on the dotted line or pray some prayer out of the back of our Bible, but, Lord, that we would anticipate you working in their hearts 
Lord, we, we have seen this morning where you grant us repentance. This isn't something we do on our own. That you give us the gift of salvation. This is something we cannot obtain with money or by going to church or joining a church or giving to a church. Outside of Christ, none of that means anything to you. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, if there's any here who this message has caused to bring a question into their heart, into their mind, Lord, only they can fix that with you. They can come to you and they can say, Lord, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I made a profession of Christ when I was five, but I don't know if I'm truly saved or not. I don't know if I have this desire for the Word of God. I don't know if I have the desire to come and fellowship with the saints and pray. Maybe you're looking at your life this morning and you know exactly the sins that are evident. Seven days a week, and yet you can hide them on Sunday and come here and pretend. But God knows your heart. And He doesn't offer condemnation. He offers salvation. He offers grace. He offers forgiveness. I pray that you would cry out to Him today. Even this morning, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin to the Savior. And I pray for Christians that that would be our message as we leave here this morning. When we run into somebody out there in the world who's yet to come to Christ and they need to hear the gospel. Help us not to forget to include the message of repentance. Father, we thank you. We pray for our fellowship time over in the fellowship hall. You'd bless the food of our bodies. And just uh, allow us to have a, a wonderful time together and uh, take us safely through this next week. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.